G'day, I'm Ollie Laleve and welcome to GRDC In Conversation. We'd first like to acknowledge the traditional lands on which the podcast is produced. We've travelled to and spoken to people all across Southern Australia for this series. We'd like to pay our utmost respects to the First Nations Australians who have told stories on this land for thousands of years. This series is a GRDC investment that takes you behind the scenes as we sit down with some of the people shaping our grain industry, uncovering their journeys, learning more about their passions and the projects that are part of their everyday. We're uncovering Southern Australia's grain growing regions, chatting with researchers, advisors, growers, advocates, and just about everyone in between. Welcome back to the GRDC In Conversation podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Alan Mayfield. Now, Alan, after our first chat, I was trying to think, how do I describe you? And so I think we can put you in maybe three buckets. We know you're incredibly passionate about agriculture and the grains industry. You have been a winner of the GRDC 2021 Southern Region Recognising and Rewarding Excellence Award. You're a passionate community man, as we were just chatting off air, citizen of the year for South Australia. And then the other part of your life, which people may not know, is that you've got a pretty good track record, and that's a very good pun by me, as a middle distance runner, where you're Australian middle distance runner of the year. So I think we're going to cover a lot here, Alan, but firstly, the biggest question we'll ask is, how are you today? Yeah, and I'm feeling fine. I feel very satisfied with what I've done and I've got things in front of me that I would like to do. So it's really in a good place. And so what does a week for you look like at the moment? What's keeping you busy and occupied and stimulated? Mostly wrapped around community work, I guess. I'm involved very much with two organisations in the Clare region. One is the Lions Club and I've taken on board to help manage a big area, wetlands area and a lot of other stuff. The second part of that, which is pretty big, is that we've started a second-hand furniture store, been going four years, and it's just a big job where every Friday and Saturdays we pick up furniture that's donated and we uh, deliver and we sell stuff, and it's been a big fundraiser for the club and just great for the community. But it's a lot of hack work, so we do about 40 items a week, so I reckon I've shifted house uh, the equivalent of probably 150 times in the last four years, (laughs) but... It was either going to make or break you, but anyway, bit by bit, we, we're right. So we got good helpers in the club. So that that's another thing in the, the background. So that's the lines. The second part is what we call the Reasoning Trail. So this is a really nice walking, cycling trail in Clare that stretches from Auburn in the south up to a bit north of Clare, 33 kilometres long. It is managed by a committee. It's owned by the state government, but we manage it on their behalf. And we're always doing stuff whether it just be cleaning up, making it look slick or shifting signs or putting in signs, putting in shelters or whatever, whatever. There's always something to do. In fact, as soon as we finish here, I'm heading off down to check a few things down on the trail. So that's the sort of week. And then we've got family, got grandkids. So one's in Adelaide and two in Wollongong. And uh, so we're visiting them from time to time and whatever else. So and more recently, a little bit with GRDC, which was a bit unforeseen, but they came to me and asked me to do a couple of jobs, which I have just completed. Oh, there's not much tying you down, is there? <laughs> Actually, I ought to add, I, uh, you mentioned the running part. So most days, about five days a week, I train and for about an hour and a half a day. So that's in the evening. Oh, my goodness. Tell me a little bit more about, I'm fascinated about the, the town and area of Clare. What is it that drew you in and, and why is it that you're so involved in the community? Okay. So when I go, I'll go back a step. I grew up at Kimber on Air Peninsula. A really nice rural town and uh, actually in a thriving era when I look back on it with a lot of people and it's still thriving, I must say. I went to boarding school for a couple of years in Adelaide. I had two brothers who went 
basically into the farming area. And I just sort of fell into school and university and and through into the Department of Agriculture, which I worked at the Wade Institute for about 14 years. And then I had the opportunity to shift to here, to Clare, which was a broader area. I was specialist in plant disease, and now this was broader into what we call crop protection. So that was weed disease and insect control. In 1985, I came here, and that was at a time when the farming systems were changing quite a lot. So people were going from a partial cropping into a continuous cropping. There were new crop types like fava beans and one with lentils, but chickpeas and so on. And people were really hungry for information about how do you grow these, manage them, control weeds and so on. So we did a lot of trial on these to work a lot of this out. So I guess that's how I came to Clare. As a, a place to live, it's beautiful. It's within striking distance of Adelaide. So it's a bit under two hours and you're there. It's got that rural feel about it. It's in a viticultural area, so that makes it a little bit more interesting as well. When I finished with that work in plant protection, so that was about six years. So that took that was 20 years in the part of agriculture. So in 1991, I stepped out as an independent agronomist and working with farmers in advisory capacity. And one of the beautiful things about being at Clare is that in 10 minutes, you're in a, in a farmer's paddock. Whereas if you were based in a city in Adelaide, well, you, it would be an hour probably driving through traffic before you could get there. So the whole thing was far more efficient. You meet the farmers down the street and so on and so on. So it's just nice. It's, it's hilly. It's got a bit more rainfall. It's got nice gum trees, kookaburras and all that sort of stuff. So it's a nice place. All the simple things. Good little running tracks for you as well. Yeah, yeah it is. The reason trails are great running tracks. So I do two things at once. I train and I check the trail at the same time. It's not bad. That's master of efficiency, I think. Yeah, that's it. Let's touch on the running. I think let's cover it off up front. But Maybe what are some of the similarities and differences of competing and training as a middle distance runner and that of being a crop consultant? Oh, you got to know what you're doing. I mean, it's one thing to go and run. I think you've got to draw a distinction between jogging and running. Uh, jogging is just out plodding along. When you're running, you're more intense and you've got a program that you've followed. And a lot of people have coaches. I don't. I just sort of have a look at what other people do a bit and work into myself. But you've got to have this sort of schedule program which for middle distance involves without going too much detail is repetition running it's got longer so it's it's strength stamina and speed are the three things that you've got to keep to build to do well in this area i must say when you get to europe and in this international competitions they don't run they race that's another world different but um and i can elaborate on that if you need be but uh so in agronomy you really have to know what you're doing so i've had some young graduates working with me and it's been two years and before they're out in the field with a farmer on their own it is just that much detailed information you need in your head you just can't muck up you can't put the wrong chemical on the crop the weed control or anything like that so there's a lot of detail and the other thing is just it's not a technical thing but it's a human thing so it's being motivated to get going and get and to do a job the, the two are sort of parallel and it's Probably the longer you work in life, the more you realise how important motivation is and uh, and who's your sort of coach. I mean, you, the other way, you see it sometimes in, in businesses and, and farms where things are a bit dysfunctional and, and you, you can see driving down the road that it's not working and because things get late. And, but So that's the opposite of being motivated. It's just being thinking about falling apart. So I don't know, there's, there's a couple of parallels, I guess. I've never thought about it that way. The, the, the detail of doing it and then the motivation to do it. And I guess the end is some sort of personal reward of, of doing well. And with agronomy, it's often just, it's just a little side comment, but it's got a lot behind it. Farmers don't always, when 
give you a big pat on the back when you turn up. They say, let's get going, have a look at this and have a look at that. And But if you're earnest and you do a good job, and I appreciate it. Absolutely. And so one thing you mentioned there was that the Europeans, what do you say, they race, they don't run. They, they race, yeah, yeah. And I think you do all right over there too, though. So you must be a bit of a racer. Well, I had to learn. So I didn't get heavily involved with this. It's called Masters. So it's uh, international. It's on track and field, same as at any level. And it's age graded. So it's in five-year age categories to make it a bit more fair, especially when you get older. And I didn't do any of this until I was basically nearly finished with working with agronomy with farmers at little bits. But I mean, the big one is I went to USA, to Sacramento, you know, about 12 years ago. And the first 1,500 metres that I was in at that level, 1,500, if you know, it starts on the back straight at the top end uh, and it's three and three-quarter laps. So that first 80 metres where you got 16 wide and they all come into one or two wide to go around the first bend, it was like a bloody footy match. Like there was elbowing and jostling and carrying a lot you wouldn't believe. And I thought, oh, okay, this is the game, so I'm in it too. So, yeah, sort of that sort of thing. And then there's a whole lot of tactics. They, they step on your foot, they run behind, you just upset you, they just, they'll try any trick. I mean, it's all sort of roughly fair, but there's some mongrels in there too. Jeez. And how would you describe yourself in the pack? Are you a fair competitor or do you play? I'm okay. And now, I mean, if I've got to take to the front, if I think the pace is a bit slow, I will for a couple of, it's not a great place to be. It's best to be back two or three and then two, you can just, you can then work off of them. And if you've got to go for the end, end at the, around the bottom end, you can. But it's funny, sort of even 50, 800 metres, some people think it's continuous. There's actually variation in speed quite a lot and people can pick up from the back and get to the front and whatever in a tight pack. And you don't know how it's going to unfold because a lot of these international people you've never run against and you don't know quite how it's going to unfold until it happens. So it's quite an interesting mental thing, but it's very instant. So you will make a move without even hardly thinking about it to go past someone or to drop in or do whatever. There's a lot, a lot of things happening on a race and, and you can't, you can't have a game. Well, you could have a game plan, I suppose. This bloke called David Radisha who had the world record. He just started out in the Olympic Games to, to break the world record. So no one got near him. So that was his plan, but most people you sort of sit there and you work it out as you go so it's interesting oh my god it is well let's talk a little bit about agriculture you sure tell me about your earliest memory around agriculture when did you if you think back now when is the first influence of agriculture in your life growing up on a farm i guess Solly, i um there was all things happening around you as a little kid this wouldn't be allowed these days but you sit on the back of the cedar little uh, combine as it was tracking around the paddock watching the saw move and smelling it and so on, uh, sheep, feeding sheep, I reckon, in summer. So my dad would have these bags of grain, open bags and buckets on the back of the ute, and I'd be with him, and I could hardly see over the windscreen. I was probably about three, and he said, well, you're steering. So the ute's in bottom gear just going across this big paddock, and and he's on the back tipping the grain out, and I'm standing there trying to steer the ute, you know. So you you realise you're a helper. But it wasn't that too long before he had been doing slave labour almost, so we had we did a lot of land clearing, so a lot of picking stumps, a lot of milking cows when I was kids, sewing bags, you know, driving tractors, no cabins, don't want to grizzle, but that's that was the way it was done. And uh, you just knew how to do a good day's work. You certainly developed the work ethic, no question. And so as you went through your teenage years, was agriculture the calling for you? Was it inside farm gate, outside farm gate? What was pulling you? Yeah, I guess I was a bit inquisitive about things work. My, my father was a very good collaborator with the Department of Agriculture and they would come and they would talk about things and I would just sit there a bit curious about what was happening. We'd go out into a field and they would 
sort of pull out a plant, say this has got certain disease, and I wonder what what on earth is that? You know, what, how's it? So we had a bit of inquisition about it. I guess I had this thick sense that if I went on and was in the Department of Agriculture, I could contribute back into the agricultural. I, I wasn't just sort of leaving the district. I you know, had a strong affinity for the district, people I've known there, gone to school with and so on, that that might happen at some stage in the future. But oh, I don't know. So you just sort of fall into things. So I got a scholarship to go to uni. I got a scholarship to the Department of Agriculture, paid my way through uni. In those days, you had to pay. And the contract was you worked on for three years, which should have been fine because I didn't worry about getting a job. And I had a really good good job as plant disease based at the White Institute. So I just sort of fell into it in some ways. And that three years of service to them turned into a 20-odd, wasn't it? It did. <laughs> I reckon they made their money's worth on you. I mean, I w- there were a few frustrating things as public services, like to apply to go into state, you write a bloody letter. And then if you had to go overseas, my goodness, you had bloody two days writing bloody permissions and you had to be all humble. I seek your, you know, respectful bloody permission, something. And uh, so, and then when you had to employ people, you get funding from outside like GRDC, but they still had these internal processes and also limits on who you could interview, like had to be someone in the public service. And and I was get bit by bit, I just sort of got a bit sick of it. And then it came a stage where it just was too much and I just wanted the freedom to operate. And so that's what that's when I left. So setting up your own business, what was that transition like? Was it? Uh, it was pretty nervous. I mean, I, I left with no payout and in some ways I thought so that was a very proud thing to do. I think I had a pencil. And so, in fact, the, the chief of the, our office said, we're only paying people we want to get rid of and you're not one of them. And uh, so, okay, I'm gone. So I had an old ute and I also started at a time when agriculture was really in the down. So, and one-to-one consultancy with farmers was very new. There was only one other person around at the time. There was a lot of advisors in the Department of Agriculture. It wasn't always sort of detailed one-to-one, but it was probably good enough for what farmers wanted. So it was a very new thing. And in 1991, a lot of people recall the wool floor price just crashed. It was the end of the, the scheme. And the wheat price was lousy. And there was some other skullduggery going on where farmers lost a lot of money. And so I ended up working with only six farmers that year. I thought 30 might be all right. And because I was well known, I've been up here for six years in Clare, but the mood just wasn't right. So I thought, oh, well, I'll starve if I don't get on with it. So I was pretty good at doing field trial work and testing chemicals and all this sort of thing by then. So I got a lot of work from chemical companies and seed companies and fertilizer companies and so on. And that became quite a big business for 10 years where we did a lot of contract field work. But the farm a bit quickly grew and grew and ended up working with over 70. What do you think were the, the learnings in those early days? But what was it that actually kept you involved and in pursuing what seems like a hard road? Well, I reckon you had to run it lean. I mean, I grew up with a family that my parents, as I, my people, my aerial all parents went through the depression and the war years. And majority of them just sort of ran things pretty carefully, especially when you're on a, a lower rainfall farm in the South Australian Mallee, but uh, near Peninsula. But, uh, and I was sort of of that nature, I guess. I didn't want to take on too much debt. So, I just made do with what I had. And so that was just in the way of machinery and vehicles. It was a bit frustrating because it wasn't, and I couldn't wait really until I had enough cash flow to get a decent ute and a decent harvester and so on. But um, I think even though you're not sure how it's going to work, there's some pretty general rules, I think, that supplies everywhere. It doesn't matter what your business is. If you're earnest and do it, you've got to be knowledgeable about what you're doing. And if you don't know at all, you need a lot of contacts you really are very dependent on a collegiate and you'll contact people uh, and say, look, I've come across this today. What do you think? 
And by and large, agriculture's very refreshingly open in these areas. There's, there's not this sort of secrecy you, see, you have in other fields and areas, and that's one of the great things, whether it's between farmers or agronomists and stuff like that. They get on very well together. So that broadens out. And farmers do appreciate that you have got a collegiate and a network because they don't expect to know everything. And then just being earnest and being there and, and following up and, and so on and so on. So actually one of the things I had to learn over time was to actually slow down a bit, as you probably gather, I move pretty quick sometimes. <laughs> so I learnt to just sort of sit and absorb and pause and then you, all these sort of other little side issues can drop out, which for a farmer can be quite significant. It can be personal things, for example. So that was one thing that I had to learn. But yeah, I think the, just get in there and do a good job and work with good people. Yeah. I mean, every farmer you visit, you know, consults is different and the business setup's different. So as you go down the driveway, you've got to put yourself in that sort of attitude or mental state as to, to what their sort of main things that they're trying to do. Did you ever think at any stage of, as you were going down that pathway of running your own business, growing the business of packing up shop and going back and working for government or someone else? No, no, no. I, I had enough... Uh, sort of colleagues and there was a couple others around Australia had done similar things about the same time and we bounced off each other and and eventually you get this collegiate going and I, and you only just got to reflect back on the slowness of things well when I, I had this outside money to employ a technical person which I really needed so I could get out because I was in demand a fair bit to go to visit a lot of farmers and meetings this was when I was in the Department of Culture Clare and so I had this uh, I got the money to employ someone it took four months through the public service system and even then it wasn't a suitable person. So when I started privately, I got after about a year, I decided I had enough work to employ someone full time in that technical area of trials. And so I just put the word out. I rang a few people and this lad rang me back and said, oh, you got something? And I said, oh, I might have. And I said, I'm coming down that way in a few weeks. He said, I can come up. And he came up and uh, he had brought his study and whatever he'd done. He was a graduate. And this was a Thursday. And I said, oh, when do you want to start? And he said, when do you want me? I said, Monday do. And he said, yep. And that's it. That's the difference. And likewise, when I, uh, to travel. So I like to get away and go to see, especially an interstate, but just to get, see new ideas, get inspired or whatever. And after a really long bloody harvest and trial reports and farmer meetings and everything, everything, by the early April, I was flat. So I thought, bugger, I'm going to the US for a couple of weeks. So I just booked a flight and went. So wife, I said, going to the US. So I went to look at the durum growing in Arizona, but I went to Canada. The main thing was because canola was very new then for us, and I went to have a look, and it was well established there. And, and I just spent a couple of days there, just flew around my own, and you couldn't do that. Tell me, what areas of Canada did you go visit? Uh, well, that was Winnipeg in Manitoba, and uh, a bloke there, I just asking around. I got onto a bloke who was really good at that in that area and went back again. I, one of the things I did with farmers, I quickly realised that they learn a lot from each other, which is not be a surprise to anyone who's farming and uh they and so organize these trips so every year i'd organize a trip i did 17 over 20 years interstate mostly with the west australia three times there might be 25 farmers and we fly over get a bus travel around for a week visit other farmers visit some research go to a machinery field day so on so on but also went to the u.s twice took farmers over i, I organized basically the whole thing myself accommodation who we're going to visit and it takes me about 12 months to put a trip together but, and then also to New Zealand, to, to the group over in New Zealand. Hard work, but really worth it. And so have you got a favourite moment or something in your career which really stands out as a key bit of research or piece of work that you're hanging your hat on? 
Good question. I mean, here's one by accident. So I was doing some work on strike rust control, and part of it would involve time of sowing and three times of sowing. And I picked a site. I was uh, uh, just near Clare. It was on a. It was actually a university research farm, and they had a field there that had been clover pasture for 15 years. So it was just ticking over nicely. with plenty of nitrogen in the soil. And I put this wheat in in early May, I reckon, and because uh, traditional sowing was probably late May, early June, around here then. Uh, it was about 1985. And uh, it hardly any weeds there, and it just grew like a rocket. And I didn't know much about nitrogen fertiliser or anything. I was a plant disease specialist. Anyway, this wheat went seven tonne a hectare or something, something ridiculous. And farmers come to have a look at it. And, and look, I, I was more interested in strike rust. And they were looking at this bloody wheat yield and said, how do you do that? And now we're just back into that area with this hyper-yielding crops project and feeding the crops and trying to replicate the, this sort of thing. So, I mean, that was just a curious. I mean, in, I've probably done something like 200, well over 200 trials with herbicides and fertilizers and so on. So to sort of pick one out, but some of them are quite specific. There's just a local weed in a farmer's area. I'm not big-headed about it, but I'm sort of an Australian specialist in a couple of things because the only spot where this weed occurs <laughs> locally. But look, one of the, the things that uh, really touched me was after um, I'd finished with the farmers, I was trying to wind it back bit by bit. And the farm, I get, you get very attached to, to them and them to you over 20 years, and you're almost one of the family. And so I couldn't, and I said, look, to a couple, I said, look, I want to work with less farmers, doing other things. They said, no, nah, you go and cut someone else off, not me. And so in the end, I decided that I'd do the lot, to stop the lot, and uh, they can go wherever they like. And uh, so I did that and announced it in February, March, when I was visiting it. And then after, during harvest, we went around to visit them all and during on the header and just said, thanks very much, all been good. And then in January, I was asked out to this farm. It's quite a big farm. They do some on farm stays and so on. One Friday evening for a dinner with this farming couple, I get out there and all the farmers are there. The whole lot, wives, kids, for this bloody big surprise study and all these speeches and stuff like that. And when I left the pub of agriculture, I don't think it was anything. I don't even think it was a lunch down the pub, but that's the difference. You wouldn't be allowed to accept it. <laughs> <laughs> True. I mean, it, I mean, you ask what it is about, you know, with farming, but that's classic. You know. And I was visiting a, a farm advisor in just north of Wagga recently. And on his wall was this beautifully written uh, citation about from a, from some farmers about what he'd done for them, this whole thing. And we tend to underestimate what we do. You just, you always got your head down going, organising things, visiting people out there and so on and so on. And actually it was a farmer in England told me, I was visiting him, a good thinking farmer, and he said, people like you don't realise how significant an event it is when you come to visit a farmer. Because we would go to three or four farms in a day and you're just watching the clock and because I like to be on time and be there and you're thinking about what they, you've just looked at and trying to work it out and everything like that. So your head's just a sort of buzz and you come home at night, you're just flat. But for a farmer, yeah, that might be the big visit for the week or something, especially in some of the more isolated areas. Or they, but this bloke in England, well, I said, how can that be that, that that's a significant event? Because you're here in this field, I can see three villages in England, <laughs> you know, half a dozen other farms. And he said, no, no, he said, You've got ideas that are a bit out there and you want to discuss them with you and to see what you think. I had a farmer ring me one night and he said, I'm, I'm buddy, getting rid of all my sheep. What do you think? Just oh, was having tea, you know. And then another bloke said, I've shifted up and going to another part of the state. What do you think about that? And these were farmers I didn't even work with. They just ring you up and ask, 
they just want an idea. Yeah, what do you think? What do you respond? You go, oh, yeah. Oh, sounds like you made a good decision. Well, you try and think of something pretty quick. <laughs> so what I'm really interested in with you, Alan, as well, and I guess it flows on from that, there's the benefit from the side of working with the farmers. But, like, you're still so involved. You've, as you've said earlier, you've just completed a bunch of work looking at vetch and vetch trials across Australia. But, like, so what is it still that's just drawing you into continuing this work? Look, it's not far. I don't bounce out of bed and say I've got to go and do this. But when people ask you, you think, yeah, I could probably do that. And it's probably, if you thought about it a bit more, you'd realise how much was involved. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that is essential for doing this sort of review work is that you've got good contacts and you absolutely rely on contacts around the country and you've just got to realise and face facts that, that in time these become less and less and I've, I've still got enough contacts but the younger ones don't know you or whatever. I mean, a lot of them you've had dinner with or whatever, you've been stayed their place and so you know them well and so when you ring them up, they'll answer the phone. Well, they've got your name but other younger ones won't you? Well, they got a different system. I don't know how you, quite how you do it. Text them or fly it over. Just a Snapchat these days. It's a different world in there. But um, you can. And this, you just get this um, comment. Again, you don't want to get a big head about it, but people will just say, look, you're the right person for the job. And uh, and I guess when you think about it, it's a bit like the time I had seven years with the South Australian Grains Industry Trust, SAGET, which is like a small GRDC. They get a levy from growers and they have a budget of about $2 million and they fund about 15 new projects a year within South Australia and covering a fair breadth of topics from out in the field to in right within university laboratories. So, and I've got that sort of breadth where I've come up through the research area along the way, I've got a PhD and so on. And uh, then I've been out with farmers. So I've seen, sort of seen both sides of it. And I guess that's not that common that, that people have that sort of real breadth of expertise. Mm. Let's go down a, another pathway that you've explored during your career. And I'm going to say this comes from extracurricular learning, but looking at the Churchill Fellowship that you undertook in the early 2000s, what were you looking to do? And I know we'd chatted previously on the phone, but maybe just for the listeners, options on the table, Churchill Fellowship versus Nuffield versus what other options were out there and what was it you were looking at? I um, uh, Nuffield wasn't available. I guess that's the first thing. That's only available for growers and not advisors. I've mentioned a little while ago today that I like to travel to see what else has been done, to get inspired, look for new ideas. And so I don't think it's much better than get going right away overseas. The environment's different, the cropping system, but there's things you can learn. And so I like to get away every couple of years at least. And uh, to do that, and, and the family got used to me not by now to, to look at agriculture when we travel and looking at Roman ruins or something. So... We were tracking with farmers that I was seeing the what we call the water use efficiency. So this is how much yield they're getting according to the rainfall stored moisture. And by and large, the farmers were tracking up and up and getting improving with weed control and better nutrition and so on in the majority of areas. But in the higher rainfall areas, we weren't getting there. And I thought there's something missing here. And so I was that was in the back of my mind. And so when I decided I'll put the two together, a Churchill Fellowship and this question of what's sort of missing in, in our higher rainfall areas, I had a plan to go to visit where they are growing the highest yields. They tend to be in the closest to the North Pole or closest to the South Pole, uh, where you've got longer days. So in, in other words, uh, South Island, New Zealand, which has got a really choice cropping area called the Canterbury Plains, and the other area was, was in the UK. And I had enough contacts 
through agricultural research and extension advisory to sort of put, put programs together for me and, and to go out and visit farmers and so like that. So that's what I did and just came back and re- reported on it and uh, quite a bit was to do with how they approached it or the, how they used their nitrogen fertiliser, not too much too early, and disease control and a few, few sort of pretty routine things like that. Actually, out of it, I, with a group I visited in uh, Germany, they had this really uh, interesting machine that the cameras that sat on the roof of a tractor and as and it was connected electronically to the fertilizer spreader on the back of the tractor so as this uh the tractor went across spreading nitrogen fertilizer on this crop it was putting could put less on where there was thicker and darker green and more on where it was paler and lighter green and well, this is a bit curious one thing that appealed to me it was automatic so the farmer didn't have to sit there bloody pushing buttons and carrying on this thing just did it itself you had still the basic question of whether that was the right decision, but in a lot of cases it was. So I actually ended up buying a second-hand one. I've got to know there were three good top technical people in this place in Dulman in Germany, and, and they've all come out and stayed with them here. And I went back there only recently on this award of excellence and caught up with them again and had dinner with them. And, and agriculture's not such a big field that you'll know a lot of people around the world in your area. And I mean, that, that would apply especially to high-level research scientists. They go to conferences and stuff and then, you get to know a lot of people very well. It's funny, isn't it? Cause, so I spent a season in 2015 working on a grain property over in Saskatchewan in Canada. And a similar thing, like the world is so small. I was at a dairy conference only recently and this fella comes up and goes, oh, we had a had a beer together once. And I was like, oh, yeah. I was like, where's that? He said, oh, in Canada. You probably don't remember it. And I was like, I definitely don't. You know, it turns out he was working on a grain property over there. Fast forward, what are we, eight years down the track? He'd done his five years over there. <laughs> Come back and we bumped into each other in Gippsland. Exactly. I mean, I, we were there with the farmer group. It was a weekend. We stayed at Elbows, so that was the lake there below uh, Saskatoon. And uh, well, I've been trying to contact this lady who ran these farmer groups, and I just couldn't. And actually, I eventually did, I think, on a Friday. And she said, "What are you doing?" And I, it was a holiday Monday. She said, "We're up," in, and she said, "Come around." I said, "There's 14 of us." She said, "That's all right. Come to the farm. We'll put on a lunch for you." And we were walking around this lake and there was this couple there, man and lady, and we got chatting to them and it turned out she was a sister. And they said, oh, okay, come this evening on their boat. We'll take you out on the boat on the water. And we're like, Shh. I mean, exactly. Jesus. You don't want to say too much bad about anyone because someone will know. <laughs> Especially in agriculture circles, Alan. No, it's a nice area. Like I wouldn't have it any other way. A question I've got for you. So you were looking at basically what is the difference between businesses that can grow bloody huge crops and ones that grow average or still probably quite good, especially in New Zealand, but a couple of notes on it. And the world record holders in New Zealand, they were growing twice the yield of people around them, their neighbours. Like what was it about these guys? Was it different land types or how on earth can it change so much in such a small area? Yeah, New Zealand's probably closer. UK was the real standout. So if I could just uh, elaborate a fraction. So I was probably at my last update a couple of years ago, sitting innocently in the audience and the chairman of the panel, John Bennett, called me down and they gave this award, the Award of Excellence. And then they said, um, so that was just an accolade and a nice frame certificate. And then uh, someone said afterwards, you realise this comes with some uh, uh, study to it. I thought, oh, I'd better think of a topic real quick. And so pretty well worked out straight away. I want to go back to these people I visited with the Churchill Fellowship, which was 20 years previously, and just see how they're getting on, what's changed, it's the yields higher and everything. So that's what I did. So I went to the UK in April last year and 
I was able to visit a bloke called Tim Lemmyman. Again, um, <laughs> a colleague who had this uh, in, in the UK who had this uh, same nitrogen distribution sensing machine I've described. In fact, he was a UK agent and he'd been out in Stables. He'd been to college with this Tim Lammyman. He said, I know him. I can take you there. We'll go to his farm together. You know, this is a sort of nice thing instead of going in cold. Anyway, went to Tim's and he was really intent on getting this sort of world record that the bloke called Eric Watson had was 17.4 thereabouts. And at the end of that year, last year, Tim ended up getting 18. And so the average wheat yield in the, in the UK is about eight and a half tonne a hectare. So yeah, twice. And it's in a nice part in Lincolnshire. There's nothing special about the rotation. It's not a pumped up clover or anything like that. And but he, he's very intent. There's no stone unturned. Attention to detail is extraordinary. Uh, probably people don't normally want to do this. A lot of the farmers go for big scale and, and that's how the, their economy works and it works very well. For him, I mean, he had this passion about breaking the world record. Or, and so he had a whole team to work with him of, of agronomists and plant nutritionists and stuff, almost like a Formula One or an operation or something like that, with the whole team there of covering the expertise. And that they would, would meet and decide on a plan and he'd give them a pep talk and tell them, you've got to break the world record, you've got to beat this bloke. You told me, I'm going to beat this bloke. <laughs> and so as a result, and they monitored these crops pretty closely and I've been in touch with a plant physiologist in the UK who's going, been out and stayed with us, Roger Sylvester Bradley, and he said there's really nothing lacking in his crop. There's no nutrition lacking. He, he puts on stuff that you might scratch your head about because they don't, They've all mixtures of nutrients and some are a bit strange. But anyway, when they do the grain analysis, there's actually nothing lacking. And likewise with disease. So he uses the best fungicides. I mean, there's a fair bit of money goes into these things, but when you're growing 18 ton of heck, we can cover it. Yeah. So there's an attitude thing in there, Ollie, about this. And likewise, the fellow in New Zealand, he's more or less on his own. This is what he's always wanted to grow, was grow good crops. And I think it's probably a little bit more incidental that he's picked up world records. But he's just... He lives for agriculture. He's in there. He's checking. He's monitoring. He's and if something needs to be done, and he, Eric, does go to the Europe nearly at least every other year, if not every year. And he's got some very good colleagues there that he uh, well, stays with them. And you go to his shed, and he's got European machinery, stuff like that. So there you go. You sort of travel around, and pick up ideas. Whereas Tim Lamming was more reliant on people coming in. I uh, had to do this uh, study for GRDC about the high rainfall zone cropping programs and what it is that the farmers are doing or not doing that they're not getting these sort of yields. And anyway, spoken to a lot of farmers, but it's it sort of come to realise that the majority of them are very reliant on the agronomists. So they said, look, we're busy. We're doing all these multiple things. We've got sheep, we've got cropping, we've got this, that. And the agronomist is the one who's got to start today and he's, he's the one who's got to make these decisions for them. And so that trip that you did 20 years later, I'm going to ask you a similar question to what I asked before, but what had changed in agriculture over that time? But what was it that had really stayed the same that you noticed? Yeah, okay. So every time you go back to Europe, that you see that they've got the brakes on and they're losing chemicals. Not so much that they are being banned. It's just that they've had this re-registration process that the market might be really small and so the an additional requirements for re-registration that the companies are deciding economically it's not worth it. So the chemicals just drop off the list. Well, you, got, you go to Denmark and Germany, they've got more restrictions on what you can do with Nitrogen fertiliser, for example, there was a bit on the news only a couple of days ago about Netherlands, but he uh, paying farmers to not farm because of uh, nitrate concerns. Germany are pretty close to banning glyphosate, broad acre, and that's just going to put things backwards like you wouldn't believe. You're back, back to cultivating instead of drilling. And the average yield of 
of wheat in Germany has dropped by a tonne of hectare over the last 10 years. UK is not in that same sort of political game and tend to have, they have less chemicals than us and they have some major weed problems, resistant black grass, which is like their ryegrass, which has put constraints on their time of sowing. And, but they generally better off. But again, their wheat yields haven't changed very much. New Zealand have gone up a little bit, but in fact, all of the early gains were made oh, probably 15 years ago or more than 15, 20, in New Zealand, 15, believe it or not, by a young agronomist that came out, worked for a company, Dow Geddes, came out to New Zealand and said to the farmers, you do, you're doing it all wrong, you've got too much nitrogen too early, crops are going flat, falling over, you've got to keep them up, so on, so on. Pretty simple sort of stuff, no high-level science, you know, just, and then a whole lot more has gone on behind the scenes with research. But So there's new fungicides and a few little things like that. But the best thing that we have here in Australia for this, bringing these things, is there's a couple of people in Victoria. So one is Nick Paul, who's been out here for a long time, based firstly to New Zealand and now based in Australia. And Nick has close contacts in the UK. And the second one is John Midwood. John uh, uh, was working as an agronomist for a big um, firm in the UK and wanted to come to live in Australia, came out. So he was very au okay with how to grow these sort of crops. And he worked in Southern Farming Systems, was there as a CEO for a few years, and now he's running his own private business. And he works in with Nick with this high-yielding crops program. John runs the farmer side with the farmer discussion groups and stuff like that. And actually, both of them are in the UK right now. But they, you can't beat it, you know, to someone who knows the system. Just another little sort of anecdote, it's parallel. When I was on GRDC, we, uh, we always had these funding submissions coming through and put out tender. And and, and if it was a sort of a plant breeding, and, if, and there's uh, several pretty capable Chinese working in Australian universities and so on. And they just had contacts in China. And they could get material that no one else could get at Oregon inside so the GRDC fund them. And we had this other one in the, at the White Institute with Sadi with a veg breeding program. Radi Matic was there for years and years. He's very passionate about his veg program. But he spoke Russian and he had these mates back there. And so he could access the veg line. I'm not saying anything was done the wrong way, but you can't. Connections. <laughs> this contact, a bit like I mentioned earlier when I was doing this work for GRDC, you're very reliant on other people and colleagues and stuff to get this. It takes you into a step and a space that you just can't be with if you're not known or you don't know them. And uh, so that's why it's good to get about. I've, I've totally forgotten what the question is. but <laughs> well, the, the original question was about the similarities and differences over the 20 years. Oh, what's changed over those years? So they've improved a little bit but not much. I mean, you come away with the message to farmers here, let's not let happen in Australia what has happened in Europe in terms of restrictions on agriculture. And on, I know with people like Andrew Wiedem and, and uh, others, they absolutely appreciate how valuable it is to retain, for example, the chemicals that we've got. Hmm. And so have you learned as well? I'm really curious about this part, but through your travels, have you learned like what is it that Australia should be doing that maybe we're not or what do we need to do more of to make sure that we keep that access and I guess right to farm? Yeah, good question. I mean, there's some sort of technical areas, but I'll leave that up to people like Nick Paul and John Bidward. I mean, one of the jobs they did was to bring in varieties of English of winter wheats, and that those themselves have increased the wheat yield in these high rainfall zones by two tonne a hectare with these longer seasons like Akrot and so on. Uh, to the extent that wheat breeding companies in Australia now are interested in breeding but just these relatively small areas. I mean, you, there's no seed that... Other than that, that seed of varieties, everything's sort of quite different. The nitrogen timing and so on, we sort of more or less worked out. I mean, sometimes the simplicity of the technique by someone who really knows what they're doing. So this is 
back with the Churchill Fellowship, I spent all day with a bloke who was really high level, was making nitrogen decisions in crops, and he'd done a lot of measurements and written a lot of papers about how to do this and use all sorts of instruments. And at the end of the day, I said, right, now you're an agronomist standing out in the field and the crop's running up the head and you've got to make a nitrogen decision. What of all these things we've discussed today would you use as sort of the key things about making this decision? And he said, oh, well, I'd just look at the crop, actually. <laughs> I said, really? That's what my dad used to do. So he said, look at the colour, look at the density and that sort of thing, and I'll assess it from that. And, I mean, that's the essence. And I saw this when I was working at the White Institute for 14 years where you had some pretty smart scientists working there. And you worked out after a while that the, the cleverest people were the ones who could present the ideas simply. They had condensed the whole thing down into a couple of key things. So, strangely enough, you pick up some of these things from these people uh, that sort of surprise you a bit. But there's no one – like, they have fungicides that we don't have. In fact, a farmer in the UK well, – was from the UK, farms in – Victoria now, he said, how come it takes 10 years to get these varieties that we had in the UK over to here to do, to grow and trial and so on and things like that. So, but then we've got so much more going for us than, than them. We've got this uh, Butte direct drilling system. We got scale in large fields. We haven't got this interference of people walk across your field with pathways that are traditional. You've got to stop spraying or whatever you're doing while they walk through. It's, you come away thinking you wouldn't want to farm there. Bumped into a farmer in New Zealand who was from the UK, and I said, how come you come here? And he described all that. And I said, we're just not sure that happened here. We'll just stick to the southern grains industry, will we? Yeah, and no, I look, you come away thinking how well off we are with the, the way we can operate in our, our scale and the, and the less interference. Having people around, a big density of population around the farms, they use their advantage by having caravan parks or buddy fishing in the dam or whatever, whatever, storage in their barns for businesses. But frankly, we're better off without them. Yeah. Now, I've got five questions, very simple ones. Don't, I know I've shared them with you beforehand. The GRDC Fast Five for you, Alan. So let's rip into this. What's your favourite grain-based dish? This might come as a surprise for you, but it's uh, it's wheat bix and oak flakes. <laughs> yeah. That gets me going in the day. They're made out of grain. Who are three people you'd have around for your wheat bix and oak flakes in the morning? You're still mulling over the furnace after. Look, I... Irrespective of what they probably wouldn't want to come and have me at breakfast, but I reckon just get a breakfast and get yourself going. It takes me an hour or so to get going, a bit like running. It takes me an hour to warm up. And uh, so this is really basic, and I don't have to think about it. It just it happens every day. Look, the P3 people, uh, one is in the UK I've got to know really well. I'll stay with him, a bloke called Jim Wilson, who's just a, got a very detailed idea of how things operate. He works still, he's uh, should have retired years ago. He still sits at the national level with pesticide approvals. He knows a lot of farmers. He feels like he understands farmers really well. He's a great enthusiast and he's just got terrific contacts. He's been really good to me. He, Jim Orson. And a bloke who helped me a lot when I went over there to look at with this award of excellence. The second is a colleague in Victoria called Han Van Rees. He's uh, had a parallel career to mine. He's a terrific thinker. He works slightly different than me, more in the detailed science, but he just works with farmers. We sort of complement each other pretty well. We work together a lot. And the third one is just out of the blue. It's someone I, I need inspiration all the time, and this is Cadell Evans. And I just reckon that bloke, I mean, there's a lot of people in sport you could pick, but just look at that grit and cycling, a bit like running. You're doing it on your own, and a lot of it, a lot of training and stuff on your own, whereas if you're playing footy, you've always got groups around you. I mean, you've got more people you poke a stick at or, or a lot of these other team events. But there's something about having push yourself, push yourself, push yourself, and then eventually achieve what you've done. So we we all need some inspiration in life. I don't know 
out what a conversation is, it probably doesn't matter. Just having that. Anyway, so that's question two. What's the next one? Yeah, the next one is what was your first ever job? Probably unpaid job. I reckon picking stumps or something on the <laughs> farm. Yeah, all that that work I went through and we and you just did it. I worked on a dairy in New Zealand. That was probably the first paid job when I during my uni years, the end of uh second year for a couple of months. That was really interesting. I just got out of my comfort zone, went over there. We had to do some ag experience. So I thought I'll, I'll do that. Yeah. I love that. What's something you've got on your bucket list? I uh, still it's athletics at the moment because you've got to have a got to be motivated and you you're motivated if you've got an event coming up. Could be months and months out, but that gets you going and training and so on. So this one is a world championship next year in Sweden. So this is August next year. So that's my bucket list. Turn up and see how I go. And bloody win it, Alan. It's not only just with other people because you never know who's there and what sort of condition they're in. It's how you go yourself, you know, with the time or whatever. We'll watch that one closely. One final question for you. What's a question which you'd like us to ask a future guest? What motivates you? What motivates you? I like that. I said this to a farmer group. I ran these farmer groups for many years. We used to meet at three times a year and talk about cropping and business and stuff like that. Anyway, I popped this once to the farmers, about 10 in the group, and one bloke, quick as a flash, said, debt gets me out of bed in the morning. I've got debt. Oh, that's fair. So I think you need motivation. Otherwise, you go into something that enthusiastically when you're young, but somehow it's got to be prolonged. I see it on farms where you get the younger one coming home, and if everything's working well, that just takes them another step. They just pick up and go again and just to help those, but in, and you can really see it. But somehow you've got to keep yourself going and otherwise you just fall back and I don't know what you've watched TV or read the book. Not for me. Literally. No, I love that. Thank you so much, Alan, for your time today and joining us on the GRDC in conversation. No, that's been a pleasure. Well, it's been a, a bit of a, well, a slightly random talk, but uh, hopefully you got, got something out of it. We sure did. I'll just finish with another little story. I um, was asked about six years ago by... One of the people who used to work with a company called ICI to do the history of direct drilling in Australia. And so this is, uh, for people who haven't, haven't seen it happen or what was there before, this is quite an amazing revolution. And when you go back in time with cultivation and, and one of the gross symptoms was sand erosion, crossroads and gully erosion of water and so on, which is basically we've stopped completely more, as well as improvement in yields. And, uh, so they, asked me to uh, list the 10 key people for South Australia that I thought were very influential in this pioneering stuff. And these were people who got out there and modified things and they didn't necessarily grow the best crops, but they were really keen on, on getting this thing working. And, and then likewise, people in Victoria and New South Wales, but Australia identified 10. And then they employed a professional interviewer, the person like myself, to interview him. And he said, the first thing we're going to do is interview you. I said, really? I just made the list. And so that was a pretty interesting experience. So he was here for two days. And so all those interviews are in the National Library. Oh, wow. In direct drilling. And I did, not my story, but the, but the story of these farmers, because these are pioneering people. Uh, instead of the leading edge, we call them the bleeding edge because they don't necessarily go the crops, but they're just that intent on getting something done. They can got vision that other people don't have. And a lot of their success is by seeking advice and liaising with people with other skills. So it could be a CSR research scientist, could be someone in machinery or something like that. They're able to work with those people and they just test and try and test and try and to get things going well. The early days of keeping residues who were just mess and lumps everywhere and, and but they, they and you shook your head and you wonder what, what they were doing. But they got through. And I'm a great believer in the funding and we do with lines uh, these days, but in GRDC, 
the, the support the pioneering people because they're the ones who need it and they will, will show you the way to the future. Mm. No, I love that. I'm going to go look that up. Okay, Ollie. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much for your time and we look forward to chatting to you soon. Okay, catch you later. Thanks for joining us for the GRDC In Conversation podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that's sharing the stories of the people who are living and breathing the Aussie grains industry. Make sure you check out some of our other conversations and hit follow on your favourite podcast app to never miss an episode.